1: Welcome to Ruthie's Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomized Studios. Sitting here in the River Cafe on a sunny Monday morning, with chefs in the kitchen making ravioli with chirols and waiters laying tables in the garden, the uncertain world we live in feels miles away. The artist and filmmaker Steve McQueen does not separate the world of beauty and the world of suffering in any of his work, political oppression, slavery, sexual inequality. Steve and I met in 1999 when he won the Turner Prize for his radical video art, and we once had dinner together with President Obama. It was clear that the only person President Obama was interested in talking to was Steve McQueen, And he didn't want to share him with anyone else. Now, a few years later, I finally have Steve McQueen all to myself. And being a generous person will share him with you. Steve and I share a hero in Paul Robeson. We share the same concerns for equality and justice and food. And today we're going to talk all about that and more. Thank you, Steve.
5: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Tell me about growing up in London. You lived with your parents in West London, and what did you eat?
5: Yeah, we we grew up. I grew up in uh, Firstly, Shepherd Bush, uh, West London. My relationship with food really starts with the market. I was the kid who was carrying the bags behind their mother, you know, because basically I I would have to go with her because, you know, I was the sort of extra pair of hands to carry the shopping back home. Food was a way of actually getting to know London because if someone had said to my mother, there's, you know, you could get so-and-so sea um, best in this market for this amount of money, she will be there. So people used to talk about where can they get particular kind of food and fresh produce. Yeah. Where was your mother born? My mother was born in Trinidad,
1: mm-hmm.
5: but she grew up in, in Grenada. And my father was born in Grenada.
1: How old were they when they came to London?
5: My mother was about 14, 15. I think she was about 15 when she came to London, I think, uh, in the early 60s. And my father was a little bit older. I think was, maybe he was about uh, 21. I don't know. When he, I, don't, I think he came early 60s too, but not, not at the
1: same time. And so do you think her mother had taken her to the market As you say, the market does introduce us to a culture. It introduces us to a city. It's the first place I always go when I go to any town, in any city, in any country. But tell me more about the smells of the market and what it looked like for you and and your mother's experience of the market.
5: Well, in fact, what happened was that a lot of majority of people coming from the West Indies had land. And they grew their own food, you know, mm-hmm. and they look after, you know, the animals and so forth and whatnot. And fishing was a, a big part of the culture too because obviously my mother lived on, on the coast in a place called Satyrs and there's a very big fishing spot there. You know, it's kind of a fishing village. Food was very much directly sort of to, to do who, with who they were. Mm-hmm. So when they came to London, of course, looking for good food was very important. And, um, you know, we used to go to all kinds of bloody markets all over London. I used to... I used to, I used to I up with it i said miss me football focus on a Saturday because i had to go to the market with my mum it was something which i i remember there was all different cultures you know it was Indian. you had the sort of you know the londoners and the white londoners you had the indian you had the jewish you had all kinds of people it was fabulous it was really kind of cool it's
1: a good vibe when you would come home from the market what would you eat what would they cook from the market
5: oh if you get dashing you know um spinach, uh, you know, again, you know, you cook, I mean, my, my, I, my, my favorite was like a, a nice stew chicken. Mm-hmm. I mean, that special thing, like roti, just, you know, um, oh my God, what was it? A beautiful, it's like a, a nice, uh, a stew fish. And I used to love, what was this? There's one thing I used to love very much. It was, it was a vegetable. What was it? It was, um, okra. I love okra. I love okra. Oh, okra.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was
5: all kinds of exotic stuff. I mean, I say exotic because it was f- familiar to me, but my friends, my white friends, what was that? What's this? What's this? And go, yeah. Yeah. Who cooked in the house? My mother cooked. My father cooked. My father was a good cook too. He took pride in, in the uh, the Christmas ham. That was his job. Hmm. There was a particular way of cooking. There was a particular way, because his uncle was a butcher in the West Indies. So there was a particular way of cooking the ham. I can't even describe it now, but it's all clothes all indented in all, everywhere. It was almost like sort of something like a horror movie. Um, mm. <laughs> it was just gorgeous. It was, it was marvelous, yeah. yeah. Great cooks, great cooks.
1: Did you cook with them? Was it a family affair? Would you all cook together?
5: I mean, I love being with my mother in the kitchen because somehow I, I love to help out. I love to sort of be, I don't know, loved, I love that. So um, I can't say that I'm a great cook, but I was a very good sous chef. I'm a bit of a neat and tidy person.
1: Would they entertain? Would friends come over? Did was there that feeling? When people did come over, it was
5: it was a lot of family and friends. And I, well, I think most of the things that I used to do when the people used to come over, then would just listen because there was all stories that would come out that my parents would never talk to us about, of course. But they were always because adults would talk to adults, so they're free to and find out about sort of how what was going on. Or mm. you
1: know. when you left this very comforting family meals where you, you were cooked for and you ate together. What was that like when you left home? Where did you live?
5: Ah, I was actually near you guys, actually. I was, I was in Fulham. I was just around the corner from you guys. I was with this girlfriend, and uh, she was great. She was a very important girlfriend of mine. Her name was Anouk. She was uh, Swiss. And then she uh, had discovered this restaurant, this place called Malati,
1: uh-huh. the
5: Indonesian place in Soho, which was delicious. It was gorgeous. And that was my first restaurant. And she That was your first restaurant? I think that was one of my first restaurants. Uh, yeah, I was I was, I was about 19 years old.
1: And after that, did restaurants become part of your social life? Did you love restaurants?
5: Absolutely. I mean, what's great about, I mean, now, I suppose, in London, it wasn't so, when, when I was growing up, it didn't have that, was the world, I think, and in, being introduced to the world through food. And, of course, good company. That's always a, the, the main ingredient for, for, for going to a restaurant. So that was wonderful, and then we got to know. So we got a lot of restaurants in Soho. We got to know. I remember uh, during that time. It's early nineties. It early early nineties. Yeah, and also in East End too. Yeah.
1: What about in art school? Was that a revelation?
5: Yeah, I mean you know, cannon bit of cheese, bloody hell, and, and baguettes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean that was that was kind of like interesting because again. There wasn't no a dish in the West Indies, cheese. I mean, the no cheese I had was crappy cheese. You know, you can imagine a sort of a, a big block of something, which they called cheese. But getting to know cheese was interesting during my time at uh, Foundation at Ch- Chelsea.
1: I mean, it's a kind of interesting life change, isn't it, between this going to the market with your mother and carrying the bag and coming home and cooking and then sitting and down and eating and then having independence and having to fend for yourself and discover life out there. Did you go home? Would you return home for the home-cooked meal?
5: <laughs> yes, I used to love going home for food. My goodness. I used to, oh, oh, my goodness. I used to love it. It's just it's just a sort of, uh, yeah. It was difficult because at, at first it was, how do I cook? What do I cook? I was on the phone to my mom. "Mum, how do I do this? Mum, how do I do this? Mum, how do I do that? So a lot of calls about making sort of soups and, and things like that. And how do I season them? Because I, I took it for granted. I used to be the shoe chef, but I wasn't really looking. wasn't really studying. Yeah, so, yeah. A lot of phone calls, basically, back home.
2: From BBC
0: Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh, my God, we've summoned something from this board. This
1: Welcome back to River Cafe, table four. In each episode, my guest reads a recipe they have chosen from one of our cookbooks. We chose spinach and peas. So would you like to go for it and tell the world how to make it? One
5: kilogram fresh peas in their pods, extra virgin olive oil, one garlic clove peeled and diced, one dried red chili, Crumbled, one kilogram of spinach, washed, tough stalks removed.
1: Pod the peas, then blanch them in plenty of boiling water. In Italy, no one ever cooks vegetables al dente. Yes,
5: absolutely, only pasta. So rather than blanching these peas, boil them so that they almost melt together with spinach and the olive oil.
1: Gorgeous. So now, Steve, here we are, and we're going to talk about the series that has just been on television that we've all mm. watched and been so moved by, Small acts. Uh, you tell the story of a local restaurant constantly harassed by the police. Is that a memory? Is that story? Tell, t- Can you tell me about the restaurant, the politics, and the series?
5: Sure. Well, the Mangrove Restaurant was a restaurant run by... Frank Crutchlow in Lambert Grove on All Saints Road. And he opened a restaurant in 1968. And it was a sort of home-away-from-home home restaurant. You can imagine, as I said before, um, a lot of people wanting the sort of uh, the taste of home and a vibrancy of having sort of like-minded people wanting to sort of come to a place to eat and uh, to sort of uh, commune with each other. So it was a, a, a place of refuge you know, in a way you know, the, the, vibe, the, the vibes that came out of there. And it was just one of those places which became very infectious. If people wanted to go, it was, it was, it was something which was, which, was, which was on the scene. And uh, unfortunately, the, the police and, and the, the authorities at B obviously didn't like what was happening uh, at this place. Because again, it, it was, you know, it was people from the West Indies, it was working class people, it was thinkers, it was sort of uh, uh, activists who were coming there and also the hoi polloi, so all these people coming to this spot and and talking over food, having ideas, and obviously that was something which the authorities didn't like, and and therefore they tried to disrupt disrupt it as much as they could. It, you know, it was a case of the people not wanting certain ideas having a foothold in the UK, and they thought that the mangrove was a place where those ideas could sort of take root.
1: There's something about doing that kind of discussion as well over food. And Mm. one of the things that I see in in the restaurant is that somehow being out of your house, being away from your domestic life, being looked after gives you the chance to really focus on a conversation. Do you find that in a restaurant?
5: Absolutely, absolutely. And there's a sense of, I don't know, what is it? Purpose. You're there, you're Mm. present. There's another person there and present but also actually just to listen. It's just a case of being in an environment where you are, you know, you feel comfortable in order to say things and, uh, and, and listen. Yeah.
1: And also, I've talked to various people in, in business and in film and creating movies or making deals. I mean, one I always quote is Michael Caine, who said that he never did a deal for a movie in America that didn't take place in a restaurant. <laughs> Do you, and he said every, that was very Hollywood. Do you work in restaurants? Do you like to meet people that you're going to work with in a restaurant first?
5: I love it. But that doesn't happen often. (laughs) I mean, I think it's sort of, um, it's a classy way to do anything, isn't it? And also I love it because growing up in the art world, what was wonderful about growing up in the art world is that artists never paid for dinners. Mm -hmm. Never. Because you're the artist. And it was amazing. In fact, I think that's how I, you know, grew up in in food and in 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 an, in an interesting way. It was through the art world. It's completely different to the film world. I mean, you know, the fact that you you, you know you might get a crappy sandwich, you're, you're you're lucky. But in the art world, it was always the best wines. It was always the best food. You know, if it was an opening or even a, a meeting, it was always the best restaurant. And that was a huge education. Absolutely.
1: I was thinking about. Making movies and and the movies you've made, and of course here we are talking about food and eating and the joy of being taken care of through food, and then I think of the movie that you know was so earth shattering, which was Hunger, and so we're talking about a movie called Hunger Mm -hmm. and the state of hunger and somebody who put their principles and politics above comfort and, and as a political act actually starved themselves. So what was it like making a movie that was the absence of food as a political statement?
5: Heavy. Um, I mean, for me, it was, again, it's, food is an interesting thing. In that, you know, <laughs> I, I related to that in a way that of being a child, in the way that, um, you know, the, often the only power a child has is refraining to eat. His or her mother saying Mm -hmm. you're not leaving this table until you finish that plate and the child sort of you know refusing to eat and then you're sent off to bed you know and it's interesting because you know what what, you know the clothes you wear that as a a certain as a child of a certain age what time you go to bed what food you eat is chosen by your parents and the whole idea that this child only power this child has is to refrain to eat that was my relationship in some ways to Bobby Sands and and hunger strike. That the power that person had was to refrain to eat. Ever since I was a child, I remember asking my mum when I saw this image of Bobby Sands on on television with a number underneath his image, and asking my mother, what, "What's what's what is that? How old this person is?" Because no, that's how many days this person's been on hunger strike. So there was an immediate relationship with the story, and it was yeah, it was it was difficult. But I think Michael Fassbender, you know, right cast as Bobby Sands was tremendous, and that was a bond of, you know we have to this day. Um, it was a real kind of um. A labour of love in a way.
1: What other food scenes in your movies? In Twelve Years a Slave there's a scene, isn't there, at the dinner table? I seem to remember. Yeah, there's
5: lots of I think there's lots of food in my films. I mean you can see after that is Shame, the two characters, Brandon and his sort of uh, possible girlfriend are at this dinner table and this waiter. Annoying waiter comes in every five seconds to interrupt them. I remember that from having lots of dinners in New York. It's like every five seconds, someone becomes in the middle of something was getting bigger. You know how conversations are. They have to get to that point. You know, it was always it was commercial bloody breaks every five seconds. You had to start from scratch every five minutes. So it didn't make for, for a good eating experience. So I, I put that in the movie.
1: What do you eat on a film set? Do you hate stopping for lunch when you're filming?
5: No, I think it's fantastic. I mean, what was so wonderful when I started filmmaking and the hunger and, and shame and 12 this, it's like all the actors on all the crew would eat together. We didn't, were people weren't in their buddy trailers and you know, that crap. Everyone would eat together. There's something about communal eating and it's about we. It's such a unifying thing to see you know the, the hair and makeup, and the camera department, and queuing up the fluid, and sitting at the table together and talking about the film or talking about things. When there's a camaraderie, it's only time often when you're sort of on set together that you have that sort of uh, time. Is you know is when you're, when you're sitting together eating, and uh, it's fun. It's, it's, it's fun. I love it.
1: Year three is an exhibition that was at the Tate, and I went to see it three times because every time I went back, I saw something, something different in the expression of a child, of a teacher. It really told the story of the world we live in mm-hmm. through these photographs. And one of the issues that I think is very important is that when we had the lockdown a year ago, one of the things we learned that when children were denied school, they were also denied food, and they were denied food at lunchtime, which might have mm-hmm. been their only meal of the day. And the idea that we have a society that children depend on having their food away from the home because of the poverty in the home is appalling and shocking and distressing. Everything else.
5: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I had school dinners, which I paid for by my mother, and that's why even today I like hot meals, I like hot lunches. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. um, and they were vital. They were vital. They were children. I know for a fact that that was you know, the main meal of the day, if not the only meal of the day. And um, this is with a bottle of milk in the morning before Mrs. Thatcher took it away from us. Yeah. Yeah, I love school meals in that way. Also, just because we are such a good laugh in the canteen. You know, I, I associate food in school with good times, and I can even remember the smell of it, of the canteen, and the noise and the cutlery banging together. And it's so important, you know, also people have to sort of really tip the hat to Marcus Rashford and, and what he did in, in the sense of, you know, getting the government to sort of stand out twice uh, about the school meals. Because, you know, again, this is, you know, if we can't look after people we can't afford to eat, then I don't know who we are as human beings. Hmm. That it took a footballer to do that is kind of a bit, you know. There you go. Everyone has got to step up in their own way, I suppose, if people aren't doing their job properly, that meaning the government. And also, don't forget, this it, again, it's just one of those things I feel that, you know, everyone is unfortunately not brought into this world equally. But if you just give someone the possibility, a little bit of a shaft of light, one doesn't know where that might lead them to. So, yeah, the fact that people can actually have a meal in their stomach, you know, in Britain, yeah, it's, it's, it's more than important. One thing I was very shocked by when I was shooting in Chicago, uh, shooting Widows, was how I didn't see a grocery store in a black neighborhood. I didn't see any greens in a black neighborhood. You know, there wasn't a greengrocers, but there was always some sort of fast food place where people eat. So people are losing their sort of heritage of food. People are not aware of food and nourishment and possibilities within food. And food is politics. In a way, it reverts back to what we were talking about right at the beginning of of our conversation it starts with like in a way markets because markets a lot of markets are under threat a lot of markets have closed so this sense of community sense of camaraderie the sense of sort of um love of food and, and love of each other is it being sort of erased in the sort of uh you know Working class areas. I mean, you get these markets, but they're so they're kind of like posh markets, aren't they? They're sort of farmers' markets, they call them, and you know the the food is so expensive. So, um, and and I again, I I feel that they're becoming kind of food deserts in a way where kids are growing up on fast food and not being introduced to sort of um, love food in a way. So that's something which I'm, I'm a bit sort of concerned about.
1: Yeah, food is a connection, and food is a memory and food is giving and sharing, and mm. food is political and social. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and it's also comfort. It's something that we go to when we need comfort. And so I suppose, Steve McQueen, what would you say is the food you would go to if you needed comfort?
5: For me, the, the comfort food that I, I very much love and I appreciate is often on a cold day, uh, you know, and you come in, and it's one an, of my, my mom's chicken soups, West Indian chicken soup which has the bones in it and stuff, you know, you suck on the bones and it's the sort of, you know, it's the thyme, it's the garlic, it's all kinds of stuff, which, you know, there's a good ingredient which you, want, you still want to make, the dumplings, a bit of potatoes, a bit of peas, it's wonderful. So those are the kind of things that I really love. Yeah, and I could hear my dad sucking the bones <laughs> right now in my head. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a wonderful, you know, having those dinners together um, on those cold days, it, I remember it was it was beautiful. It was beautiful, and lots of great memories. My dad is not here anymore, so when I do, often do think about him, I do think about him in that soup. I do think about him Christmas and the ham, oh, of course, and Christmas Christmas breakfast was a big thing. Ah. Uh, hot cocoa. My dad would make a bake. A bake is a kind of a flat bread, West Indian flat bread in the morning, and, and oh my God, how can I how can I not say this? Um, um, fish cakes. My mother's fish cakes. Oh my God. My mother's fish cakes on the Christmas morning. And she used to make these little bakes, which was a sort of like a, like a, a, a bread where you fry in oil. Oh my God. And even my daughter she, she, when my mum comes over, she always asks Granny, please make fish cakes for me. Cause these are West Indian fish cakes. So it's just, it's gorgeous. And of course, you know, there's never anything left for me when I get home. But you know, it's just, I think really what you've done actually is, is actually given me. I mean, in fact, that's what love is Rock. Not even Lover's Rock, that's what the whole of Small Acts was based on. The foundation of all of that was based on food and memory because it's what's so fascinating. I'm rambling on it again myself, but the smell is the most, and taste is the most potent sources of memory. Not the photographs. Photographs can only tell you so much because, you know, it cuts out what's beyond the frame is not present. It's not visible. Anyway, going on wrapping on I'll stop
1: myself stop. no don't it's beautiful but it is what it does there are people who say I never remembered that until we started talking about the food and that brought back the memory I had somebody whose father had mm-hmm. left home and he would when he saw his children on the weekends he would suddenly start cooking for them and and he said Oh, I don't, you know, I don't think I've ever told anybody that story, mm. but now I remember my father actually as a way of his guilt or his love mm-hmm. just started cooking, you know, and, and I think what you just, when you choose your comfort food, you start thinking about your father and your mother and you think about the memories and that it's so potent, isn't it? Mm. I, I, I thought it would be interesting, but what it really brings home over and over again is the connection that food has for us, for memories.
5: Forget about this island. This this is. I'm telling you, it's a mate, it's Doug. You've done it, mate. Smell and
1: tell you've done it. Oh, thank you. You've done it. It's it's all to do with you. To visit the online shop of The River Cafe, go to shoptherivercafe.co.uk Ruthie's Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
6: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
2: com.